Today on the podcast, one of the things I'm primarily going to talk about is what I call self-applied neuroplasticity. Now I'll explain, I'll explain what neuroplasticity is, and we'll talk about self-applied neuroplasticity, which is a term that I came up with a few years ago when I was looking into transformation and change, you know, neurobiological change, how we change our minds. So the application of attention, what we do with attention and awareness in terms of changing our minds. Now, all of this is connected to stress and to trauma and to resilience. And I like to encourage people to think about moving from surviving to thriving. And surviving is where we're kind of living from the base of our conditioning, from the base of complexity or difficulty or childhood adversity with the patterns that those have created dominating our lives. And when we start to shake and disturb those patterns and free up that trauma, free up those complexities, then we start to move more into thriving, into resilience, into optimization, into building potential and creativity and power agency, if you like, the capacity to do things in the world where we live a more authentic life, authentically who we are. So just come back and review again what I've talked about in the previous podcast is the five kinds of stress, four of which are distress, and one is positive, eustress, you know, the good stuff, the stuff that is stressful, it's sympathetic nervous system, but it's good. And, uh, you know, firstly, there's environmental stress, which is hot, too hot, too cold, climate change kind of stuff, you know, it's burning. Um, it, you know, it's freezing, it, it's too humid. And we're getting into those kind of complexities in the world now. And we're going to get to a point whereby we have so much humidity in certain parts of the planet that people aren't going to be able to live there too hot, too humid. We won't be able to cool ourselves. We won't be able to live there. So that's environmental stress, that kind of thing. And the second is developmental stress, which is crucial to understand in a slightly separate way, because what happens there with developmental stress, things like childhood adversity, complexities, um, when a child is in the womb or when it's a young, young, young child, um, all the way up through to adolescence, really, you know, those different phases of life and how the brain can be radically affected by those childhood complexities. And again, this is really important to understand because when the brain is riddled with cortisol, you know, the, the stress mediator cortisol, it changes the way the brain grows. It radically changes the brain, the way the brain goes. And of course, when we, when we fill brains with cortisol at early ages, when, you know, we end up with lots of people later on in the criminal justice system, in the mental health systems, in social services, you know, struggling with education because the brain has not had the opportunity to grow well. It's a kind of ludicrous, ludicrous way to grow brains is to ripple them with cortisol on a regular basis when they're still growing. But this is commonplace still in the world. And in some ways, the biggest change we could make on this planet would be to enable all young people growing up from now on to have as little childhood adversity as possible. I'm not talking about getting rid of resilience building. I'm not talking about getting rid of character building. I'm talking about getting rid of the kind of messy kind of stuff that damages brains. You know, cortisol rippling through a child's brain on a regular basis 
is going to affect the way it grows. And we know that we've got all the science behind us. You know, Gabor Mate's wonderful book, The Myth of Normal, is full of the evidence behind that. You can just you read it. And there's so much other stuff out there. Stephen Levine, so much stuff. It's untrue. So we know this for a fact, pretty much. I don't use the word fact very often, but I'm going to use it here. We know this for a fact. And we know that's massive developmental stress. You know, one of the things we really struggle with is social interactions as well. So social and interrelational stress is another biggie. And that includes money because money is what we trade life energy for. It's all about relationship to life energy. So social interrelational stress and money is the next one. That's the next big stressor. And the fourth really is very, very key to all of this because it's perceptual stress. Because actually, other than developmental stress, where we couldn't do anything about it, there's something that happened to us. Yeah. The social and inter, you know, and that certainly informs how we see the world later. But ultimately, when we take start taking responsibility for what's happening inside our own system, when we start doing that responsibility leap, what happens then is that we start to recognize that it's the way we're seeing things that is creating stress. And once we see that it's the way we're seeing things that, that is creating those stress experiences, we can start to do something about it. And that's perceptual stress. And there's you stress, which I talked about, which is sports. It's uh, loving sex. It's challenges well met. It's good, good dopamine. Dopamine that is responsive to the kind of effort we put in. We're putting good effort in, we get good dopamine out. All these different things are interrelated, of course. And one of the key things we're going to talk about later is how, how do you do stress? How do you do stress? Because studying how we do stress, how do I do it? How do you do it? At studying that, we can begin to reverse engineer it. And it's from that reverse engineering of our own stress production patterns, which involves perception, it involves the myofascial web in terms of how things tighten up. It involves digestion, how we do digestion. It involves what we're seeing. It involves the stories we tell ourselves. It stories involves the meanings we're making about ourselves in the world. All these pieces of the puzzle yeah, that's how we do stress. And when we start to really become aware of all that, we can reverse engineer that. And that's where we start growing resilience. And this, if you think of it like this, as I've said before, is our personal resilience project. Oh, clarifying resilience. I've done this on the previous podcasts, but basically it's the capacity to bend and get stronger from the bending. It's like wind on a tree. It makes it stronger. So we learn to ride stress, surf stress, play stress, be creative with stress. And we use the experiences to become even stronger, more created, more creative, more committed, more playful, more curious, you know, building resources and skills. And to meet that demand, have fun doing it. And when we smash it, when we crack it, when we beat that thing, when we do that thing with it, what happens then is then we get ourselves more dopamine and we have more resources and more resilience to meet the next challenge. So it's really good. Just to be clear, resilience is not a collapsed into an adrenalized reaction, but it's a switching on of a whole load of other neurotransmitters that includes epinephrine and catecholamines, all those kind of things, as well as dopamine. It's good fun. And we can anticipate beating the challenge and we work at it and we do what it takes to crack that challenge. It becomes a sport and we give ourselves the rewards on completion. Yep, got that one in the bag. Sometimes it doesn't work, of course, but that's life. So resilience is training our brain, it's training our body, it's training everything of what we are to get off the get up off the ground, get back on the horse and ride again. And we ride again, and we ride again, and we ride again. And we ride better every single time, as long as we can. That's the deal. Resilience, great stuff. Another way of thinking about resilience actually is, you know, resilience is using applied knowledge for the purposes of freedom. 
it's you know we've got this kind of knowing of like i was talking about different kinds of stress so you know we take that and we actually apply it we embody that knowledge so applied knowledge is embodied knowledge is for the purpose of freedom for the purpose of empowerment for the purpose of being amazing in the world and when we use that embodied knowledge as a learning curve and we give ourselves space to get it wrong and that's actually okay yep it's okay messed it up now let's do it again let's try again it becomes liberating you can learn powerfully like I've said before, often we learn at school that we can't learn. We learn that we're a failure. Nobody's a failure. It's learned that they're not good at learning. And that's not true. Every every human being is really good at learning. You're good at learning. You may not realize it, but you're good at learning. So one thing we're encouraging is the learning frame. And I'm going to mention this again. I've mentioned it on the other podcasts. But the learning frame is a mental and emotional state of observation, curiosity. Mm, that's interesting. And then choice. What choice do I have here? Now, just to be really clear, observation means we can see clearly the nature of phenomena. Phenomena is stuff that's happening. It's thoughts, it's feelings, it's body sensations, it's objects, stuff in the world and people in our environment. And it's about how all these phenomena interact and interrelate. We can see all these things happen. We can see it. Yeah, we're paying attention. When we get stressed out, we pay less attention. We get rabbit in the headlights kind of stuff, you know. Now, curiosity is a playful inquiry into how things connect and relate. We're getting really curious. Yeah, it's fascinating. I didn't know that did that. I didn't know that was related to that. I keep checking these things out and we go deeper and deeper and deeper down the rabbit holes. Not getting stuck in any of them, of course. Choice is the capacity to make an informed choice based on all the information available. And it also requires different perspectives. We just go down one rabbit hole. We've only got one perspective. We need to go down at least six rabbit holes. Or if you prefer to think of it in a different way, we need six different lenses, six places of seeing, at least six, to be able to get to the point that's kind of from the bottom, from the top, from the four cardinal points, at, at least six, I would say seven, before we can even begin to understand the thing properly. And most people make, you know, look at a thing from one perspective. They're going to this one thing like this, and they think that's information. They think that's knowledge. It's not knowledge. It's a perspective. It's an opinion. When we're looking at it from below and above and behind and in front and from the left and the right and from inside, and that gives you seven different viewing places onto anything, any phenomena, then we can start to begin to understand it. So we need all those places, and that then gives us choice. From all the data we have available, from our sense fields, our memories, our emotions, our thoughts, our motivations, beliefs, intentions, we've got this data and we can do something with it because we've got all these places of seeing. And all of that takes practice. It takes discipline. The magic word here is discipline. And the magic word for self-applied neuroplasticity is discipline. Along with discipline comes compassion. Discipline is balanced with compassion. Why? Well, because discipline by itself can be cold. It can be the bare attention. You know, it can be, you know, discipline actually is finding awareness. And discipline means to follow. And we can do it in a really healthy way. But to do it in a healthy way, discipline has to have compassion as a part of it. We have to understand that discipline is finding awareness. But the feeling side of awareness is compassion. I'll say that again. Discipline is finding awareness. It's directing attention to find awareness. Yeah, that's what it is. But the feeling side, the emotional aspect of awareness is compassion. It's understanding the interrelatedness of everything. It's understanding there is no linear cause and effect. And it's looking at those bigger picture things and it's understanding things. So compassion is deeply connected to understanding how things actually are. And we can be compassionate for ourselves and for the movements of energy as this livingness. And we can be compassionate for others then. Compassion begins at home and it's a function of awareness. They're intimately related.
So all these pieces are necessary if we're going to go deeper into self-applied neuroplasticity. Now, you know, again, just to understand that stress, particularly long-term and repeated stress, is debilitating. It destroys the quality of life. Ultimately, it's a killer. You know, the consequence of stress is metabolic disorder. It's metabolic disorder where the cells stop functioning properly. You know, the energy of life, ATP, is no longer made properly. Mitochondria stop working properly. You know, stress hurts cells. And when the cells get hurt, that starts to lead to complexities, metabolic complexities. And that metabolic complexity is the root of all the diseases of aging, cancer, dementia, cardiovascular disorders, diabetes, type 2 diabetes, for example, inflammatory conditions. All of these are directly related to stress. So when we're working with all of these aspects of stress, the different functions of stress, yeah, we're working with clearing out childhood adversity, we're working with environmental stress, and we can use those to our advantage. Like, you know, one of the reasons for getting into ice baths, for example, is to play with that environmental stress and say, yeah, I can do that. One of the reasons for doing breath holds is to, to edge into those environmental stresses. So then we have a way of relating to those really tough stresses so that we can start to change other aspects of our existence because the other aspects are then small things. So self-applied neuroplasticity, what is it? Well, what's neuroplasticity, first of all? Neuroplasticity is basically learning. It's the learning brain. It's that simple. Now, the main thing about our brain is it's neurostable. You know, we, we've developed patterns. You know, the, when, when, a, when a baby's born, its brain doesn't have that many networks joined up apart from the basic functioning stuff to enable a body to work. It, all the, in the cerebral cortex, the, the bits of neurons haven't joined up together to create networks yet because all that happens through experience, which again is why childhood adversity is so damaging. It creates unhelpful networks. But the networks, the way the neurons join together, all happen through experience. And that creates a fairly stable view of the world. The world is like this. We come up with metaphors, you know, metaphors. The world is uh, a bunch of cherries or whatever, a bottle of cherries, or whatever. You know, the kind of metaphor we have around what the world is. But that's neurostable, is a consistency to this. And then within that consistency, that neurostability, we have neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity is the capacity for um, where the neurons join together, the synapses which join the neurons, for those synapses to pull apart and to rewire. And there's a phrase from neuroplastic change which is, what fires together, wires together. And what fires apart, wires apart. And that simply means if you always do what you've always done, you always get what you've always got. So to, to create neuroplastic change, one of the key tools we have to have is awareness. Awareness. We have to find awareness. And how do we find awareness again? What's the great tool for finding awareness? It's discipline. Discipline practices. So the reason I teach the meta-disciplines the three personal meta-disciplines and the three relational meta-disciplines is because they are key to finding awareness. They are absolutely key to finding awareness. So those those keys. So neuroplastic change, first of all, awareness. And then we have, from that place of awareness, a moment of choice. Do I do what I've always done or can I do something different? What's the edge here? What can I do with this? What can I do with this? So understanding the embryonic brain, understanding that network creation and the, you know, the, the fatty sheaths that are laid down around the nerves, the myelination, 
that are laid down and those connections between neurons, between those synapses. And that's what the connections in the brain are about. And it's not about the size of your brain. It's about the size of your networks. It's about the connections between neurons. That's what matters. Synaptic connections is what it's about. And the capacity to be able to mobilize those synaptic connections and change them with practice. It takes practice, but it takes discipline. It takes choice. It takes practice. Now then there are a thousand trillion synapses in the human brain. That's impressive. It's an amazing piece of biotech. And those synaptic networks of connection occur through experience, like I've said. So again, when, we, when we're changing our experiences, when we're changing our behaviors, you know, we're not doing the same thing. We're learning to find awareness. Oh, I always do that behavior. Let's change the behavior. That change in behavior, that changes the way the brain works. So self-applied neuroplasticity itself is actually quite a simple concept when we think about it. Now, the other thing to bear in mind is what I call the intense learning state, the theta state. Now, um, you know, one of my backgrounds is clinical hypnotherapy and, of course, also meditative depth, understanding depth meditation. And in both of those traditions, what we find is the capacity to enter into the theta state. And the theta state is the dream state. We all go into it when we go into dream state, REM sleep, where the eyes are moving from side to slide, the dream state. We go into that, and that's where our emotions are worked with. They're explored. Emotional regulation occurs. Emotional modulation occurs. You know What we're doing with emotions that have happened during the course of the day is in the dream state, we're processing those. It's emotional processing capacity. We're also um, in, in consolidating learning. So moving learning from short-term memory to long-term memory in, in the intense learning state as well. Serves many other functions as well, but it's a very powerful state. Now we live in this theta state pretty much up until the age of eight. Children live in this state, which again is why, you know, complex childhood adversity is so damaging because it's affecting that the brain development in such a strong way. But what we can do as we age, when we get to over a certain age, it's harder to access the theta state at will. But with discipline, practice, breath work, and meditative depth, we can do it. And, you know, hypnotherapeutic practice, it can be done as well. So we've got these different aspects, hypnotherapeutic practice, meditative depth, and of course, then conscious breath work. And with those three, we can go into the theta state and we can learn to train ourselves to go into the theta state because that is the intense learning state where we can create rapid neuroplastic change. It's an important skill. It's directly related to creativity. It's the learning brain at its best, if you like. Neuroplasticity is the capacity to change, to learn, to access this theta state, and to change the way our brain is wired. Self-applied neuroplasticity is when we understand these principles and we use discipline, we use attention, we use compassion, and we use choice as tools for change. So I've got six keys for you, six keys for self-applied neuroplasticity. See, that's six keys. That's six there now. I held one hand up, a five there, six. Did anybody notice? So that's six, okay? The first key to self-applied neuroplasticity is awareness, finding awareness, finding awareness within the patterns, finding awareness. The second key is discipline. And discipline guides attention. It guides attention. And through guiding attention, it helps to find awareness. We find awareness through discipline. You know, um, you can't just find awareness without there being some way of deepening into something. If we're just doing the same old pattern, then we're not going to find awareness in that. It's highly unlikely. 
So having formal practices where we can go in and sit and pay attention, what's happening? What are the relationships between things? What's occurring in here? What's the relationship between thinking and feeling? What's the meaning-making patterns that are occurring here? What's the beliefs that are arising? What's the stories that are arising? All of that is becoming more and more transparent. That is finding awareness within, within those patterns. So we've got the first key is awareness. The second key is discipline, which helps us find that awareness. And the third key is finding choice. The moments of choice, the moments of leverage within the pattern, the turning point. You know, it's finding that place where we can shift it slightly and it takes us onto a different trajectory. Fourth key is compassion. Be understanding of the complexity of being alive as a human being. Be kind to yourself. Give yourself a break. You're doing your best. You're doing amazing. Give yourself a break. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to other people. Really understand the complexity of life, and you'll find compassion for this livingness and find compassion for others. And you know that makes the world a better place, right? Fifth key is right action. What action do you take to make that right change for self-applied neuroplasticity? And what action do you make that improves and enhances your optimal function and the optimal function of other beings around you? And the sixth key is integration. Integration. Integration is how you walk that talk, how you live the vision how you take that into life, how you practice it. So it's not a just a, it's, you know, it's about making the difference. So that's first key awareness, second key discipline, which guides attention, finds awareness. Third key is finding the choice, the leverage moments. The fourth key is compassion. Be kind to yourself. Give yourself a break. Fifth key is right action, right steps, right, right thing to do right now. And how do you know that? And the sixth key is integration. Those six keys are the way to start getting this self-implied neuroplasticity really buzzing, really working for yourself. Another one here, of course, is taking nothing personally. Yeah, that's right. Take nothing personally. It's not about you. Notice how you take it personally. How do you take it all so personally? How do we do it? It's crazy. You know, we're kind of built to take it all personally. We take the universe personally. Oh, universe, you're doing this nasty thing to me. Oh, do a universe, you're doing this good thing to me. Oh, universe, you know, stop taking it personally. It's not about you. Give it a break. Another key is finding the body as awareness. And the Naga practice, which you can find on YouTube, and um, it's a phenomenal practice, is a practice of finding awareness in the body. It's a really good practice to do. So finding the body as awareness. And then you're also finding emotional awareness, literacy. That is the nuances and flavors, the different qualities of emotion. How many different kinds of anger can you find? Have you got hot anger, warm anger, seething anger, cool anger, you know, frozen anger? How many kinds have you got? You've got dark anger. Have you got bubbly anger? You know, what kinds of anger, you know, literacy, all the different kinds of sadness, of grief, all the different nuances and flavors and changes, and the intelligence to be able to see them, feel them, understand them, and communicate them. That kind of level of emotional awareness is key and the capacity to communicate that intelligently so it's not thrown at people in a kind of like emotional array of bleh, like some major tantrum where you throw your emotions at people and expect them to try and pick up the pieces and make sense of what you're saying. You know, we have the skills to be able to say, actually, I'm feeling this right now. And I'm aware this is complicating my communication a little, but what I'm trying to say here is this, and this is what I'm communicating in essence, my concern, my choice, you know, what I want to communicate is this. 
and so we're we're taking looking at the phenomena of our experience and be able to pass those out and separate out this complex emotional nuances mm -hmm. and the desires and choices and the preferences we have and separate those out slightly. And there's also cognitive awareness, different kinds of awareness: the body's awareness, emotional awareness, cognitive awareness. And discipline helps us find all of these. Cognitive awareness of narratives, the stories we run. And our brains are constantly telling stories about ourselves or other people. And our brains are constantly making meanings. These, these brains are narrative and meaning-making devices. And then there's discursive thought, analytic, discursive, chatty, chatty, chatty thought. What if, what if then, when after that? And you know, there's all this kind of apprehensive future-focused stuff as well. What are the patterns here? What are the patterns that you find in your body? What are the patterns in your emotions? What are the patterns in your cognition? You find those through awareness. All of these are connected to stress. And when you become lucid and clear in spotting and understanding those different elements and finding awareness in the body, finding awareness as the body, finding awareness in emotions, finding awareness as emotions, finding awareness in cognition, finding awareness as cognition, then we stand a chance of doing something very powerful with shifting these phenomenal patterns into a state of liberation with that perceptual shift that can occur and the choice, the leverage that comes with that. There's also relational awareness, you know, how we do relationship. How do we do relationship with different people in different contexts, in different types of relationship with different people? And all of this is manifests as our personal stress patterns. We push and pull ourselves around with the different adrenalized states, most of which have been created in our mind from this perceptual position of complexity and difficulty and the narrative and meaning making it occurs from this and the emotions that arise from this. So these different layers, these nuanced interrelated layers, gradually we can tease them out with awareness, find choice within them all and slowly soften it out and life changes. There's a role of belief here. You know, belief is incredible. It's, um, you know, if we look at beliefs being highly tested as a placebo, you know, that's belief, basically. You believe something and, um, and hey, presto, you know, people have cured cancer with placebo. It's pretty impressive. That's belief. Now, the thing about belief is really what people need to get belief working usually is a meta-narrative. So, for example, using the, the cancer type one, you know, some there's some guy in a white coat who's got lots of authority, who has a medical model, which he tells you about. And, you know, he tells you this particular pharmaceutical is going to do the job. Actually, it was a piece of chalk. They were just doing an experiment. But, and, but anyway, the cancer gets cured. And that's fascinating. Placebo is fascinating. So we usually need an authority and a meta-narrative to be able to get belief really rocking. So the power of belief, we, we usually need a meta-narrative, a big overarching story, and an authority that represents that in some way. And what we get is a consequent suspension of rational mind that then elicits powerful, emotionally related action that could not have otherwise happened. And we get these kind of remissions and these healing and other acts coming from this. And you know, the medical literature is full of it. And, and you know, the, there are many, many instances of this in the world. So when we can understand that, we can start to understand belief and play with it. We can start to use our belief in a powerful way, in a way for liberation, in a way for enhancement, in a way of social change, pro-social change. We can do what we want with it. Powerful. All of these ways are liberating stress creating optimization for our system to live in the most optimal way we can. You know, coming back to belief, of course, we, we know there's also nocebo, and nocebo is where we create pain through belief. 
So people create diseases because they think something awful is happening. This is, you know, psychoneuroimmunology, which is a new science, is looking at this and how people create complexity and difficulty based on their perceptual position and based on the stories, the narratives and the meanings they make out of that. And then how that becomes an embodied experience. So if you think of it, role of belief, you know, belief as a liberating tool is simply reverse engineered nocebo. It's creating, it's, it's you know, it's ucebo. You know, it's creating goodness. Great stuff. So we've got so many tools that we can use. And of course, on the courses that I teach, which are, you know, mind training, conscious breath work, and embodied awareness as the three personal meta-disciplines. Um, and then there are the three interrelational meta-disciplines as well. Those three personal meta-disciplines are powerful in terms of shifting through conditioned mind states, conditioned belief states, and creating a life of difference, a life of optimization, a life of thriving, um, a life actually that's fun, a life that's full of choice. We get to choose. And that means a life of responsibility. Responsibility is responsive. It's responsive to everything. It's amazing to be responsible. There's a price, of course. Everything has a price. Along with that, of course, you know, those meta-disciplines, the art of mind training and belief, you know, the power of sleep, I must mention here, you know, is so important. And of course, within sleep, there's a phase of practice. There's two other practices I want to mention, which we teach on the courses that I teach. And one is lucid dreaming. Lucid dreaming is the capacity to wake up in the dream state and to utilize the dream state as a tool for creativity and deeper practice. So lucid dreaming is a profound practice. And then, of course, we have NSDR as well, non-sleep deep rest. Um, I had some NS I took some NSDR earlier on. Today, I had a 20-minute nap. I went down, just dropped for a while so that I could optimize the rest of my day and have you know really good really good time doing what I want to do today. So I look after my energy states. So non-sleep, deep rest, um, which is a, a term I think coined by Andrew Huberman, but it's a great term because it talks about that way we can drop down to, we're not going to go to sleep, but we're going to deep rest. We're dropping through the states, dropping down from the beta state, the busy brainwave state, down through into alpha state of relaxation, down into the theta state, which I talked about, navigating through these states maybe even to the delta state where the brain is cleaning itself and we get human growth hormone happening. I'm going to go to sleep soon, but I wanted to share some of these tools with you because I think they're profound and they're powerful and they're life-changing. And the courses we've got out there, which is the Stress to Resilience course and the Owning Your Life course, let alone the, the breathwork courses. They have lots of good stuff in as well. The breathwork course, level one, level two, level three, and so forth. But the two I'd go for, if you really want to nail some of this stuff, go for the owning your life course. You know, stress to resilience first and owning your life. Get those two under your belt because they're going to teach you these tools, the tools of self-applied neuroplasticity. And self-applied neuroplasticity is a game changer in terms of looking after yourself and building a life of empowerment and being able to surf life's complexities and that is a great thing a great thing to have